song, what beautiful words. Praise forever to the King of Kings. That's what we're here to do uh, today. And Ryan, thank you again, and Addie, and all of you all for leading us in worship here this morning. What a privilege to be here with you all. Uh, Before we get started this morning, I want to just mention a couple of things. Uh, Many of you here know uh, our close friend, Philip DeCourcy. Um, Philip's from Northern Ireland. He's a pastor, friend of mine. In fact, you know, Philip, other than the folks who are here at our church, is my best friend in ministry. A great blessing to me in my life. Been a great blessing to our church. Anyway, his daughter's here this morning, Laura DeCourcy. So, Laura, stand up. Uh, She's here visiting with us. Laura, it's great to have you here with us. Yes. Their, uh, their whole family's been a real blessing to us. I'm going to see Philip next week in Dallas, so we're looking forward uh, to spending that time together. Uh, this is uh, the second Sunday of the month, but we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of this service. Uh, last Sunday, we had our, our child, our baby dedication. So I just always like to mention that so you can be preparing your heart and mind as we enter into that time of fellowship with our Lord. Uh, but this is an exciting Sunday for me this morning for our church as we're beginning our uh, three-week Advent series uh, we've titled this series, God Came Near, and we're going to be bringing three, seri- three messages from the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, Hebrews chapter 2 next week, and then on December 22nd, I'm um, in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, there's a lot in the book of Hebrews, if you know that book, a lot in the book of Hebrews about eschatology, about the, the second coming of Christ, about His return, but there's also a lot in the book of Hebrews about uh, Christ's first coming and His first advent. So as we begin this series, let's begin at the beginning. I'm in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. So if you'll take your Bible and uh, turn there with me to those verses. Uh, The largest uh, radio receiver on earth is in New Mexico. Um, It's called the VLA, or the Very Large Array. And it's a series of huge satellite disks that are on 38 miles of railway. And together, the dishes mimic a single telescope the size of Washington, D.C. And astronomers come from all over the world to analyze the data that's collected there. Um, Such a large apparatus is needed because radio waves emitted from sources millions of miles away are very, very faint. In fact, think about this, that the total energy of all the radio waves ever recorded equals the force of one single snowflake hitting the ground. Now, that's faint. But, but when you think about that, it's amazing what lengths people will go to hear the faintest message from space, uh, searching the infinite darkness for, for any word they might hear, uh, straining to the eyes of telescopes and the electronic ears of the VLA for any subtle sound they may hear from space. People long, if you will, for some word from above, for some word uh, from beyond uh, this world in which we live. Yet the Bible tells us that the transcendent God who created all things has spoken. And His message is not feigned and it's not indistinct. The Bible tells us that God has spoken to us in the skies. God has spoken in creation of His majesty and His greatness and His infinitude. God has also spoken to us in the Scriptures, in the Word of God that He's given to us, the inerrant, infallible Word of God. But God has spoken most clearly and most definitively, not in the skies and not in the scriptures, but in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is God's best word and He's God's last word. Now Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 is one sentence in the Greek, and it is one theologically dense sentence. 
I mean, it's, it's a power-packed sentence filled with Christology. It's a sweeping sentence that takes us from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus to the exaltation of Jesus to God's right hand in the span of three verses. So let me read these verses for us this morning. Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. And we're kind of dropping down here at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. And most scholars believe that the book of Hebrews originally was a long sermon. If you're going to listen to that whole book as a sermon, that'd be a whopper of a sermon, but probably was. When you get to the end of the book, uh, the writer there um, applauds the, the readers and says you know, for, for enduring and for, for listening to this, this word of exhortation, as he calls it. Um, and the, what you have in this sermon here, if, it, if this was a sermon originally as it was given, is you have the whole message of the sermon succinctly summarized right in the first sentence. And, of course, the, the summary sentence is, is that Jesus is a supreme. Jesus is sufficient. Now, the book of Hebrews was w- written to Jewish Christians, people who were Hebrew people, Jewish people who'd come to faith in Christ. Probably in, in the early A.D. 60s, um, they were undergoing some faith, some uh, persecution and hardship for their faith. Probably live in the city of Rome, and they're being tempted because of this hardship to go back Uh, to quit and and to give up and to go back to the outward observance of Judaism. So they're wavering and they're discouraged. And we see here that the best medicine for those who are faltering in their faith is a fresh vision of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that's really what the, the book of Hebrews is about. Why in the world would you ever go back when you have all the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ? If you read the book of Hebrews, one of the key words is the word better. It occurs 13 times in the book, and it's showing us just one by one that Jesus is better than every aspect of Judaism, so why in the world would you ever go back? Um, Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron and the priesthood. He's better than all of those Old Testament sacrifices in his once-for-all sacrifice for sin. So Jesus is better. Um, He's best. He is supreme. That's the message, really, of this text this morning, that Jesus is God's best and last word. Now, as you can see there in your outline this morning, I've got three simple points to unpack these verses. I want to look at the partial revelation in the Old Testament, then the the, the permanent representation in the person of Jesus, and then the perfect redemption that was accomplished by Jesus for us. Now, we see here at the beginning the partial revelation. You'll notice the book begins, God spoke. So it begins with God. It's a a presupposition that God exists, and it's a presupposition that God speaks. You'll notice the word spoke there in verse 1. You'll notice down in verse 2 that God has spoken in his Son, and down in verse 3 that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. 
So the focus in these verses is that God is speaking uh, to man through his son, Jesus Christ. The Phillips translation says it like this, God who gave our forefathers many different glimpses of the truths in the words of the prophets. So what we see here in in, in this beginning in verse 1 is that God has progressively revealed himself over time. There's a progressive unfolding of the biblical story. And of course, that tells us there's a unity and continuity to this story. I know I've mentioned this before, but back in uh, the beginning, in in the Garden of Eden, you have the perfect beginning, like all good stories. Then the antagonist is introduced to Satan, and there's a crisis And the rest of the Old Testament and uh, the Gospels are the resolution of that crisis. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God promised a deliverer would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And so the Old Testament is this, this plot, this ascending plot, this story with this trajectory moving towards the coming of that deliverer. And the story reaches its climax in the the person and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we live now in that time between his death and resurrection and his coming again when he's gathering those who will be part of that kingdom, when he'll come and rule and reign and make all things new and bring the story uh, to its uh, wonderful completion and resolution. But the plot was being developed in the Old Testament and God was speaking to the prophets as the trajectory of all of this move to the coming deliverer. And of course, Moses writes the first five books of the Old Testament about 1400 B.C. And Malachi writes the final book about 400 B.C. So a thousand year period where God is speaking to the fathers and the prophets. And notice it says that God did this in many portions. So God portioned out his revelation in chunks, if you will. He didn't give it all at once. He didn't give Genesis to Malachi all at once. He gave it in pieces. So the the revelation in the Old Testament was fragmentary and incomplete. It was piecemeal and bit by bit. And so each of the 39 books in the Old Testament was another portion, if you will, in that biblical story that was unfolding. And each new word built upon the last, and each one added to the picture. But it was partial, and it was piecemeal, and it was progressive as it moved along. In fact, we call that the the progress of revelation as God revealed more and more of his plan. And it was also preparatory because it was all building to the climax of the coming of the Messiah, of the Deliverer. So God spoke in the Old Testament in a lot of different portions. And notice it also says he spoke in many ways. Now think about all the ways God spoke in the Old Testament. He spoke to a burning bush, to Moses. God sometimes would come and speak to someone in person through a a theophany or an, an appearance. God sometimes spoke through angels. Uh, We think about that a lot this time of year as the angel Gabriel came and appeared to Mary and to Joseph and and, uh, the the, the choir of angels are singing to the shepherds. Uh, God spoke through dreams in the Old Testament. He spoke through visions. Um, One time in the book of Numbers, he spoke through a donkey. You remember that? I mean, God spoke in a lot of different portions and he spoke in a lot of different ways. But throughout the Old Testament, God's revelation always carried the implied message to be continued. It always kind of left you hanging. There was no ultimate resolution of the story. Now, when I was growing up back in uh, the 60s and 70s, especially in the 1960s, I loved uh, Westerns. 
There were a lot of Westerns that were on back in those days. It's probably the heyday of Westerns. And I'd watch some of them were 30 minutes or an hour. And every once in a while, I'd be watching one of those. And you kind of get near the end of it. And you think, you know, this thing's kind of not wrapping up very quickly. You know, kind of, you know, this thing needs to get moving. And then my most dreaded words, the, the most dreaded words would come on the screen at the end, to be continued, you know, next week. Well, you have to remember back in those days, there was no way to record it. So you had to make sure you were there at the same time and you got to watch that you know, second episode. You could figure out how this thing uh, was finally going to finish. You're always afraid you were going to miss the finale. And I, and I think about God's revelation in the Old Testament was like that. It was never full. It was never final. It was always unfinished. It always kind of left you hanging. It was always with those words to be continued. And so then we come here in our passage to verse 2, and we move from that partial revelation to the permanent representation that God sent in His Son, Jesus Christ. From verse 1 to verse 2, we move from fragmentary revelation to full representation. Notice he says, in contrast to what was before, in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. Now, most of you probably know this, but the last days is this entire age from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming. You know, people often ask the question, you know, do you think we're living in the last days? And the answer to that question is yes. It's been the last days since uh, Jesus ascended back to heaven. People ask that, they usually mean, are we living in the last days of the last days, which we well could be. But this whole age is the last days. And in these last days, God has spoken to us, it says, in His Son. God came in person to speak to us. After all the, the fragmentary, partial revelation in the past, He's come now in permanent representation in the Son. One person I read this week put it like this, In Jesus, the world received her King. What God had said beforehand in text messages and emails and phone calls, He said in finality in person. And I like that. The, the Old Testament was like emails and, and phone calls and text messages. But finally God came in person to appear, to reveal Himself uh, to humanity. In Christ, God has spoken in fullness and He's spoken in finality. In my reading this week, I ran across a quote, and I don't know who said this, but it's a great quote. It goes like this. Jesus is the answer the world has looked for all its life. He's the answer to every question. He's the end of every thought. He's the period to every sentence. Jesus is the whole message of the whole God for the entirety of the human race. That's beautiful. He's the end of every thought, the period of every sentence. He's the whole message of the whole God for the entirety of the human race. Jesus is God's last word to man. And by the way, one of the things that tells us is we don't need to be looking for fresh revelation from God. A lot of people out there are trying to get some new word from God or some fresh revelation. Jesus is God's final word to us. We need to, to learn of Him and appropriate Him and His truth and blessing to our lives, not go out there on some uh, frantic search trying to find new revelation. Now, what we have in these verses are seven statements of Christ's superiority. What is it that makes Christ so unique? Why is it that He's qualified to be God's final word? 
So we're going to look at these seven supremacies or seven excellencies of Christ. By the way, if you want to go on and study a little more in Hebrews, if you look at Hebrews 1, 5 through 14, the author here goes on and gives seven Old Testament quotations that will prove the superiority of Jesus to angels. But seven superiorities here, excellencies, then seven Old Testament quotations um, after that. But he starts out by saying here that Jesus is the inheritor. Notice he's been appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the heir because he's the son. And obviously the son is the heir of what the father has. And in this case, Jesus is the only son, so he gets it all. He doesn't share it with anybody. Jesus is the only son of God, so he's the only heir of God, and so Jesus gets it all. And when he comes at his second coming, he's going to rule and reign over it all and take control, and it'll all belong to him. Back in Psalm 2, verse 7, the conversation between the Father and the Son, and the Father says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations uh, for your inheritance. Jesus is the the heir of all things, and someday he's going to come back, and he's going to take the inheritance. You know, as I read this this week, thinking about the Christmas season, I thought, though, what an irony. Jesus is the heir of everything, yet when he came into this world, he was born in a stable, and he was born to common people. And he was laid in a feeding trough. And even during his life and his ministry, as he traveled around, do you ever notice when Jesus got into a boat to preach or to go somewhere, he always had to borrow a boat from somebody? Jesus said about himself, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And think about the the final act of indignity for Jesus. He He was buried in a borrowed tomb. So here's this one who's the heir of all things. And he comes to this world and and he humbles himself. But that's all going to change when Jesus comes again. The book of Revelation is the book that tells us about the second coming of Jesus. And really the book of Revelation, if you want to summarize the message of that book, it's Jesus coming back as the rightful king to take his inheritance. He's coming back to rule and to reign. And we will share that inheritance with him if we know him. Because the Bible says we'll rule and reign with him forever and ever. So Jesus is the heir. He's the inheritor. But secondly, Jesus is the creator. Notice the end of verse 2. Through whom also he made the world. Now that word world there is not the word so much for um, the the, uh, matter and space that we see, but it's more having to do with time. Through, Through him, Jesus created, literally you could translate that word, the ages, the times and the movements of history. Jesus is the Lord of the epochs of history. He's the Lord of the ages. He's the Lord of all the plans and the purposes of God. He's Lord of all the dispensations. He's Lord of time and space. All the way back in the book of Genesis, it starts in the beginning. That's when time started. Before that, you just had eternity past. But all of a sudden, something was created of time, and there's a beginning, and Jesus is Lord of time, and He's Lord of all the ages. And Jesus created the entire time-space continuum. John chapter 1, verse 3 said, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Colossians 1.17 says, All things have been created through Him and for Him. 
So if Jesus is the Lord of the ages, if he's the creator of time, then obviously that means he is preexistent and coexistent with God the Father. I mean, if he created time and created the ages, then he had to exist eternally in, in the past before the epochs of time ever came into existence. Dr. R.G. Lee is one of the most famous Baptist preachers in America from a, a past era. He said this about Jesus. Jesus is the only one born with no earthly father but an earthly mother. He had no heavenly mother but a heavenly father. He was older than his mother, and he was the same age as his father. He, he was coexistent and preexistent with the father before time. He, he's timeless and he's eternal. He is the Lord of the ages. Back on uh, April the 15th of 1865, President Abraham Lincoln uh, died at 7.22 a.m. Um, a doctor put his hands across his chest and he whispered the words, he's gone. And everybody in the room knelt by the bedside and placed their hands on the bed as the minister asked God to accept his humble servant, Abraham Lincoln, into his glorious kingdom. And the room remained silent until Secretary of War Edwin Stanton proclaimed, now he belongs to the ages. And it is true that some human beings like Abraham Lincoln are so great in their impact that they belong to the ages. But only of Jesus Christ can it be said that the ages belong to him. Jesus created the epochs and the eras and the eons of time. He's Lord over the ages. Now think about this for just a moment. If Jesus controls all the times and the movements and the eras of history, then he controls all the time and uh, the seasons of your life and my life as well. I mean, if he's got that all under control, then he can control the times and the seasons of my life and your life. He controls your life. He controls your history and the seasons of your life. So whatever your season you might be in right now, it may be a difficult one. I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord over that season of your life that you may be enduring and struggling through now. The third thing we see here is that Jesus is the radiator in verse 3. Notice, He is the radiance of His glory. Now the He there is Jesus, and the His glory is the Father. So Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. And it means here that Jesus is the effulgence. He's the outshining of the glory of God. And this tells us Jesus' glory is not a reflected glory, it's a radiating glory. In other words, it's inherent within him. Jesus is the outshining of the glory of God. And that's why when he came, he said, I and I alone am the light of the world. Uh, the Nic Nicene Creed says it like this, Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. I mean, you can't say it better than that. Jesus is God of God. He's light of light. He's very God of very God. Jesus radiates the glory of God, but when he came to earth, he veiled that glory during his incarnation. And of course, this time of year, we love to sing that carol, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. The only time I know of during Jesus' earthly ministry when he allowed the, his essential deity to shine through the sackcloth of his humanity was during his transfiguration. He was up on Mount Hermon with some of his disciples. And remember it said he was transfigured before them and he was shining like the sun in its strength. Sun, shining like the sun. They're probably in the middle of the night. I mean, just like the, the sun blazing. 
Jesus is the brilliant, radiant revelation of the glory of God. Look, Jesus is not some grainy, blurry image of God. Back when I was growing up, you'd watch that little 13 or 19-inch little black and white, you know, little fuzzy, little grainy thing. Now they've got HD. Now they've got 4K HD. I mean, I don't even know what that is, but it's getting clearer and clearer. But that's what Jesus is. He's God in 4K HD. He's the shining radiance of God. He is God in perfect, brilliant focus. He's the one who brings God into focus for us. We see next Jesus is the representer. He's the representer. He's the exact representation of his nature. That word exact representation, it's one word in Greek, the word character. And we get our word, obviously, our word character from that. It's the only time it's used here in the New Testament. And it's a word that was used of minting coins. It was used of an imprint or an impress. You had a die, you know, with an image on it, and you would impress that upon, upon soft metal. It would, it would leave its imprint there. And whatever was on that imprint would be placed on that coin. It was an exact representation. Often it would be the, the face or the likeness of some emperor. But it's saying here that Jesus is the exact imprint or the stamp of God that he bears the very stamp or imprint of the nature and the essence of God himself. Jesus is the full representation, the exact reproduction of God. Like J.B. Phillips puts it like this in his translation. He says, Jesus is the flawless expression of the nature of God. So our Lord Jesus Christ bears the stamp or the imprint of the nature or God's essence. So when you see Jesus you see God. You see God in his fullness. And this is a powerful answer to all the cults and others who deny the the full deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the stamp, the exact imprint of the essence and the nature of God. In fact, if you go on down in verse 8, this is how clearly it states it. Look at Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son, he says... So it means of the Son, this is what the Father says about the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the Father here calls the Son God. So for all who would deny the deity of Jesus Christ, let him come and read of the first chapter of Hebrews. Jesus is the full representation of God. Fifthly, Jesus is the sustainer. He's the sustainer. I love this. It says, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, that word upholds there is a Greek word that it has some different meanings, but in this context, it means to cause to stay in a state or condition. It means to cause something to stay in a certain state or condition. So we would use probably the the synonym today to support or, or to sustain something or to maintain And it's used here in the Greek in the present tense, which means Jesus is constantly sustaining and supporting everything by the word of his power. He does it all the time, every night, every day, 24-7, since creation came into being. So Jesus created it all. He's going to inherit it all someday. But in the meantime, he's the one that's holding it all together. Colossians 1.17, Paul wrote this, He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So when it says Jesus upholds everything by uh, the, the, the word of His power, it's not like Jesus, like holding everything up like Atlas. You know, y'all have seen Atlas, you know, holding the world on His shoulder. 
He's not holding it up as much as he's carrying it in his hands. And he's sustaining it. And he's holding it together. And this universe that we live in, that we inhabit, I just read recently that someone now believes it's 47 billion light years across. Of course, a light year is 186,000 miles per second. So I think, I think a light year is 6 trillion miles. So anyway, whatever that is, 48 you know, million times 6 trillion, um, that's what you get of how far, how many miles this is. And the Bible tells us here that Jesus holds it all together. I mean, it's in his hands, and it's light as a feather. It's easy for him. In fact, it's so easy, it tells us how he does it. He does it by the word of his power. The same word that he used to speak it all into existence is the same word that he uses to hold it all together. The utterances of Jesus keep this world afloat. They keep it from collapsing, from flying apart. And so Jesus sustains it by the same word that he used to create it. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, 10 times, you have the words, God said, God said, God said. God spoke it into existence. He upholds it by the word of his power. Back during uh, the Vietnam War, uh, helicopter pilots uh, coined a, a slang term to describe this certain uh, hexagon-shaped nut that, was, uh, that held the main rotor to the mast of the helicopter. And it was, again, it was this hexagonal-shaped nut, and they called this uh, the Jesus nut. Now, you can imagine why they called it that. Because if that small piece of metal ever came off, all the people in that helicopter were going to see Jesus and really quickly, right? I mean, it was over. So they called that the Jesus nut. It held everything together. And in the same way, Jesus is the nut, if you will, or the one piece that holds the entire universe together. He, he keeps the whole thing from flying apart and collapsing. And, you know, the same thing is true in your life and in my life as well. Jesus is the one who sustains us and supports us. He keeps our lives from flying apart. And there may be some of you here this morning as uh, the, the Christmas season is upon us that you, you feel like your life's crashing down around you. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you have uh, uh, financial struggles. Maybe it's um, relationships and things like that that are kind of flaring up again and bringing back uh, hurtful wounds. You and I need to remember that it's Jesus Christ that holds us together. And let me just say this as well this morning. If everything in your life is going great, Jesus is still the one that's holding it together. Sometimes we just think, you know, I got all these problems. I need the Lord to hold me together. We need him to hold us together when everything is good and it's right. Look, Jesus is the only one who can hold it together for us. We have to cling to him. And to me, that's a great thing to know this Christmas season. Jesus can carry you. He can sustain you, He can support you, and He can keep you from coming apart. He can hold you together if you'll just trust in Him and cling to Him. So we have in verse 1 this partial revelation. Then verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, we have this permanent representation. But the final two of these descriptions of Jesus, I want to bring those under a new category and call it the perfect redemption. Because we move from who Jesus is more now to what He's done. And you really have the, the, the whole message of Hebrews right here in these verses. You have a final revelation. You have a full representation. But here at the end of verse 3, we have a forever redemption in Jesus Christ. 
Notice what he says in the end of verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look, you and I have a terrible problem. We are sinners. We're impure, and we cannot purify ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. Jesus is the purifier. We have to be cleansed, and the only way we can be cleansed is through his blood that he shed on the cross for our sins. He's the purifier. I uh, I memorized these verses years ago in the King James Bible, and I love the way it says the end of verse 3 in the King James. I like to quote it this way. It says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus did it by himself. He is the only one who can wash away our sins. And it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I love that because that really tells us two things. It tells us that the work of Christ is finished, and it tells us that it was accepted. Later on in the book of Hebrews, the writer's going to talk a lot about the priesthood and offering sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple. And we're going to, you see there when you read that that there was a lot of furniture in the tabernacle and later in the temple. But one thing you'll never find there is a chair. There were no lazy boys in the tabernacle or the temple, anywhere in there. Because it says that the priests offered time after time the same sacrifices that could never take away sin. It says they were daily standing and ministering and offering these sacrifices. The work could never be finished because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But the fact that Jesus sat down means the work that he accomplished is a finished work. It's a once for all, forever work. Go over to Hebrews 10 for just a moment. I can't resist the temptation to read these verses. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11, this is a beautiful statement of what Christ has done for us. Every priest stands, notice, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he is perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. And then on down in verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. It's finished. It's a finished full forever work that Jesus has done on the cross. And the fact that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God also means it's an accepted work. God would have never allowed Jesus back into heaven to sit at his right hand if the Father didn't fully accept what the Son had accomplished. So Jesus sitting there at the Father's right hand tells you and me the work he's done is finished and the work he's done is accepted. And the most important question I can ask any of you here this morning is, have you received that finished work into your life? Has Jesus had the last word in your life? Everything's been done this morning for you. All you have to do is receive that pardon that Jesus purchased for you when he died on the cross. And there's no better way to celebrate Christmas than to receive the Christ of Christmas into your life. You know, some years ago, they gathered a bunch of scholars together to figure out who were the most, the 100 most important influential people in history. And they got all this whole list together. And I remember actually reading the book that had these 100 in there. And I remember looking to see where Jesus fell. And Jesus in that listing tied for fourth. 
Now, Jesus isn't fourth to anybody, and Jesus isn't second to anybody. According to these verses, Jesus is the final word from God. He's the future heir of all things. He's the fullness of the Godhead. He's the the foundation of everything. He's the forgiver of sins. In Jesus Christ, God has come near, and he's spoken fully and finally and forever to us. Let me just close here this morning. Three quick applications. I'll go through these quickly, but... Three things for us to be thinking about. Knowing what we've talked about here this morning should fuel our evangelism. I mean, this knowledge of Jesus should fuel our passion and desire to tell other people about him. I mean, when we read about who Jesus is here, how can we keep quiet and not tell people around us who need to know him who Jesus is? This is our supreme Savior. And may God in these weeks before Christmas as we lead up to that time, may he loosen our tongues for people around us that the conversation may turn to spiritual things and to tell people about uh, this Savior, the fullness of deity in bodily form, the Lord Jesus Christ, and lead them to Him. Secondly, this ought to further our endurance in life. That's why this passage was written. It was written to people tempted to quit and to go back and to give up. There's nothing for us to go back to. We have all of the fullness and all the supremacy in Jesus Christ. So if you're wavering in your faith here this morning and maybe discouraged in some way, keep going and keep enduring and keep your eyes upon this supreme Savior we've seen here this morning. And a final application I'd give is this should focus our expectation. Look, this same Jesus who's the last word in revealing God to us, he's going to have the last word in history. He's going to come someday and he's going to take over this world and he's going to rule and reign over it. He's seated now at God's right hand, the Bible says, waiting until his enemies are made a footstool uh, for his feet. Jesus is going to have the last word someday. But in the meantime, we want Jesus to have the last word in our lives. You and I need to focus our hearts and our minds on him and let him have the last word in our lives every day. Uh, William Booth founded the Salvation Army, and I know we hear a lot about the Salvation Army this time of year, going in and out of stores, they'll be you know, ring, ringing the bells. Uh, William Booth started the Salvation Army, a powerful gospel movement in London. But when he was dying, there were some affairs of the Salvation Army that were in limbo. And the attorneys told his wife, Catherine, she said, before General Booth dies, it's important that you get him to sign a few documents to keep some of the the affairs of the the, the Salvation Army in order. So he wasn't far from dying, and his wife Catherine went in and said, Sweetheart, I need you to sign your name to these documents. It's very important for the future of the Salvation Army. So he revived a little bit and signed these five documents. And then very quickly after that, he died and he went to heaven. But what was interesting about this is they only discovered later that in all the blanks where his signature was to be given, he signed the word Jesus five different times. Now, I've always wondered how that worked out for the Salvation Army later and all the the, the legal details of that, but that's beside the point, right? He was so focused on Jesus, though, that's all he could think about. And they asked him to write a name, and five different times he signed Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I thought to myself this week, what a way to go, focused on Jesus, letting Jesus have the last word, if you will, in your your death. That's the way we should die, and I pray that's the way we all will die. But more importantly, that's the way we ought to live. We need to live giving Jesus the last word in our lives. If he has the last word in in our own life, our marriage, 
or home or family in this church. Jesus Christ, the last word in everything. Let's pray together. Father, we come and we ask if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that they've never received that full, finished, forever work of Christ for themselves, that they would do that. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the last word, that he's seated at your right hand, offering that benefits of that finished work to anyone who will receive it. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone who's never trusted Christ, they'll do it now. They'll receive that pardon that Jesus purchased for them on the cross. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, for his coming near to us. May we draw near to him. And Father, I pray for those today who may be struggling financially, that they'd realize in Jesus Christ we have every spiritual blessing, that we're wealthy and we're rich in him. Father, for those who are facing a difficult season of life, that we'll look up to you and realize that Jesus is the Lord of the ages. He's the Lord of every season of our lives. For those who may be here today and feel like their life literally is coming apart at the seams, Father, help us to remember and to lay hold of the fact that you hold it all together by the word of your power. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the last word. May he have the last word in our lives. And now, Father, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper as we remember our supreme Savior, the Lord Jesus. May his name be praised forever. Amen.